32%. Here at our studios, clear skies, it's 34 degrees. That's our weather situation up to the minute. I'm meteorologist Tom Churchill. WPCA radio weather has been made possible at this time by your friends at Austed SuperValue on U.S. Highway 8 in Turtle Lake. On the web at AustedSuperValue.com. Adam and Jody invite you to stop in soon. It's about 20 seconds past 9 o'clock and Saturday, and that means it's time for Deep Roots Radio with Sylvia Burgos-Toftness. Good morning, Sylvia. Good morning, good morning. Talk about a lovely day. Boy, oh boy. This is bizarre weather. It is. It's been a strange year. (laughs) My cattle are fine, but I look out and I think... I'm a little anxious. Where is this going? Where right. is this winter going? Yep. And am I going to get slapped on the back of my head in we, March? We might have uh, tomatoes in the ground by March. Ooh, scary, <laughs> scary proposition. But you know, one of the things that is kind of fun in this weather is that uh, the cattle are thriving. Mm-hmm. Uh, you and I both have uh, fairly small herds on our uh our farms Mm -hmm. Uh, you of course you were you spent more than 30 years as a dairy farmer and now you're doing grass-fed beef of what kind is it well they're kind of a mishmash now we've been crossbreeding them oh have you so what have you been crossbreeding well we got uh uh, gelvays and then we've crossed and we also have herefords and then we've crossed them with uh with angus and i think that's probably it probably angus the herefords we've kept uh uh, as Herefords, but the okay. others we've been crossbreeding. And so yeah. you really kind of made some choices to meet the needs of your farm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And certainly uh, Dave and I, my husband and I, we raise um, Bolingos, mm-hmm. which is a crossbreed that was established in the late 1970s based on an old-fashioned dual-purpose cow that mm. was called the Dutch Belted. Oh, sure. Yep. yep, that's the kind of cow that lots of people had on their homesteads because it, ha- it, had, it was beefy enough to be able to slaughter and g- actually get a good amount of meat. But also it was uh, a cow that provided good milk, good mm-hmm. supply of milk. And so this was a cow that if you didn't have a lot of them, a lot of them on, your, on your farm, you could use uh, very uh, successfully for both purposes. And yours retain that belt. Uh yeah. Yes, they did. In fact, um, this Bolingo, it was uh, one of the, the uh, goals of the people that developed the Bolingo crossbreed was that it was pretty mm. and that it provide a good amount of milk. And so mm. it's a it's a cow that wears a big, wide, white belt. Mm-hmm. And it's either black on both ends or red on both ends. Mm-hmm. And my herd has a mix Okay. Um, because a black and white bolingo can have a red and white calf ah. and vice versa. Okay. It's like labs. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a cow that's really well suited to the size farm and the kind of management practice that we have. We mm-hmm. raise, like you, Dave Corbett, 100% grass-fed. Mm-hmm. And it certainly yields uh, the kind of beef quality that we're looking for. And it does well in the weather. Ah, in yeah. which we live. It's really, really well suited. And when you and I, Dave Corbett, think about, you know, what's going to work best for my farm? You know, how many people are working on the farm, mm-hmm. how many acres we have available, and the climate in which we live. Right. Um, we're looking for certain kinds of animals that will do well there. Mm-hmm. It's a very different set of criteria than would be used for, let's say, industrial or confinement right. farming. 
where animals are crowded thousands and tens of thousands to very small spots where they're fed grain and uh, usually subclinical antibiotics Mm -hmm. and where they're looking for very fast growth in order to sell them off at 14 to 16 months. Mm -hmm. How long does it take for your steers to get to sale size? Well, we sell them uh, as feeders, so we don't raise them... uh up until we don't finish them off you don't finish them and on my farm that's what we do we Mm -hmm. we breed all the way to finish and our finish uh cattle our our beef are harvested at 24 to 30 months okay so doing things on 100 percent grass-fed takes longer right but that suits our uh philosophies on how to farm Mm -hmm. and uh how to use our land and climate uh Mm -hmm. in order to help the animal, help the land, and help with our own profitability. Sure. Those are the kinds of things that farmers used to think about all the time because they did it on a small scale. Mm-hmm. And the kinds of cattle that, cattle or chickens or sheep or turkeys or ducks that they chose were really shaped by the place in which they lived. Mm-hmm. And those are not breeds that look like the kind that are going through right. confinement operations today. Where are those breeds now? Hmm. Those ones that the smaller farmer used to use. And who's, who's growing them anymore? And, and should we be concerned about the fact that we don't see them as much on the landscape? Well, we have with us this morning someone who knows about those um, issues and has some answers to those questions because it is Allison Martin, who is the executive director of the Livestock Conservancy. Good morning, Allison. How are you? Good morning, Sylvia and Dave. Good to be with you. Oh, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us because you're an hour ahead. You're in Massachusetts? I'm in in North Carolina. That's right. You're in North Carolina. The, you're, you're the Livestock Conservancy moved to North Carolina several years ago. That's right. We were founded uh, up in New England in 1977. As a matter of fact, we're getting ready here in March to celebrate our 40th anniversary uh, but moved to North Carolina in about the mid-'80s, and it's been a really good home for us. There's a lot of, of interest in small farming in this area, uh, and uh, it's worked out very well. Well, tell me, what is the, the major purpose or mission of the Livestock Conservancy? The Livestock Conservancy exists to protect endangered livestock and poultry breeds from extinction. Just like you were talking about, you know, these older breeds that were developed um, you know, really as, as kind of regional breeds that were well-suited to the place in which they evolved um, as we move toward larger-scale uh, production agriculture and, and really wanted that, that uniformity of product that we have in today's marketplace, we moved away from these older breeds, and a lot of them are now very much endangered more so in 1977 when we were founded, but I'm proud to say that we have not lost any breeds that have been on our conservation list uh, since, since that time. You know, when you say that, Allison, we have not lost, it, it really kind of gave me the chills because I thought, my gosh, we're losing domesticated livestock breeds at, at an amazing rate. In fact, um, just taking a look at your website, the Livestock Conservancy's website, I guess um, I read that the uh, United Nations um, organization, was it the Farm and Ag, 
FAO. Right, a farm and agricultural organization. Right. They have, um, they're now saying that we're losing how many breeds a week? Yeah, it's a tremendous number. And so we're we're losing about uh, one breed a month globally. And so uh, the fact that in countries like the United States where we've started to to pay attention to our rare breeds um, and and stop that uh, loss is is really important for our global biodiversity. Okay, so that that sends me into the next kind of thing. Um, you're, you're all about making sure that these livestock breeds don't become extinct. Why? Why care about that? Well, you know, you, you, there's a lot of different ways to look at it. People come to this realization for different reasons. Um, the, here, these breeds are part of our American legacy. Uh, they're, they're, they were breeds that our, our forefathers developed and used. And, you know, is it really our right to say, gee, we don't need them anymore, we're going to throw them in the trash bin, um, or should we, we uh, preserve them uh, for, for historic and cultural reasons. But then they're also part of the future in a changing world. You know, you, were, you started off the hour, the hour by talking about the, um, the weather and, and this crazy weather that we're getting this, this winter. And, and we've seen it here in North Carolina where we had record low temperatures followed by record high temperatures and, and then back down to, to more seasonable winter. And, uh, and so with these changes, um, are, are the, the, the small number of breeds that we're using in our production agriculture, are they, do they have enough genetic diversity or are we going to need to draw from other places? Are we going to need to, to tap into uh, some of the biodiversity in our agriculture to meet the needs of the changing world? So- and then you think... Go ahead. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I was just going to ask you. So it's that genetic diversity. So, you know, when you think about livestock, what kind of traits does that genetic diversity kind of point to? Well, you pointed to some of them in um, your bilingos that were developed from some of these older breeds. Yes. So, with these, we these are now the purebreds that we might use to create something like a, a bilingo in the future. You know, they've got um, self-sufficiency, and so uh, they still harken back to a time where they 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 didn't um, have their feed, you know, for example, handed to them on a platter, so to speak. Um, so they've got the foraging capabilities, um, hardiness, uh, adaptation, like we talked about. You know, some of them are real well adapted to living in cold climates. Mm-hmm. Others are, are exquisitely adapted to heat and humidity like you might find in our southeastern states. Um, and then longevity is one that we don't talk about often enough with our livestock, that um, if you've got a cow who's productive well into her 20s, then economically on your farm, she's going to be um, a lot better for you than if you're needing to replace your cows every couple of years because um, of fertility problems or because they're, they're not... Uh, doing the job as mothers. You know, I'll, I'll just give you a quick example. I was at a grazing a workshop, full-day grazing workshop, a couple of days ago, and the speaker, someone you may know, uh, Gabe Brown out of North Dakota, um, he had a picture, uh, a slide, of one of his 
one of the bulls of which he is extremely proud. This bull had short, short legs, a massive um, barrel chest, very thickly muscled from, 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 big, from the head to tail. Um, and this animal, it took him a long time to regenerate some of the, the qualities that he wanted, and those were the ones that we were seeing, these, these things I just described. It, it took him almost, it took him, I, mean, I would say, probably 10 years to get back to the old-fashioned traits that does yeah. well on grass. And this is a grass-fed animal. Right. No grain being used to fatten it up. And it was also a 12-year-old bull that Wonderful. he will continue to use, they said, until that bull decides to drop on the grass. Because that is the strength of that of those old genes that he's using. Well, that's just it, Sylvia. And 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 these old breeds fit really well on um, today's small and sustainable farms. So for those who decide that they want to um, to 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 raise livestock the way that our forefathers did, and um, usually. Like you, they're finishing the animals and then selling them directly to the customer rather than, um, uh, you know, following Dave's choice to go with a cow-calf operation. So on these small sustainable farms, these characteristics, um, like you're describing, really uh, add value. You know, they, they, they really work for uh, some of the newer farmers. How many, how many kind of, uh, types of animals are you concerned with at the Livestock Conservancy? Is it just, it's not just cows. It's not just cows. Uh, we work with, with all of the traditional farm animals, so cattle, goats, pigs, rabbits, sheep, uh, turkeys, ducks, geese, chickens. Um, uh, we even work with horses and donkeys. Wow. That's, so yeah. those are the kinds of, that's the kind of, kind of um, livestock mix that used to be more prevalent I guess, on smaller farms in years past. And, and it's coming back. And so uh, a lot of the, the farmers today have a mix of species. And so rather than just specializing with pigs, say, or just chickens, um, the small farms, uh, a lot of times they'll start with poultry uh, or maybe with rabbits, and then they'll work their way up from there. You know, I see... Uh, as as kind of a typical scenario of people that are that are now coming into farming for the first time, um, you get folks that maybe they start out with gardening, and they find out that hey, they really enjoy being able to feed their their families, and so what's the next step? Well, let's get some chickens and 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 produce our own eggs, and you know, well, this is really a lot of fun, and the food's delicious, and so maybe we need to add some meat animals to the mix. And then from there, it's, you know, a lot of times it'll be either pigs or goats is the next step. And, uh, uh, you know, so, so then it kind of, it, it catches fire from there, and the next thing they know, they're, they're selling vegetables and eggs and, and uh, pork at the farmer's market. <laughs> right, right. You know, uh, um, you talked about nine different kinds of livestock and, and poultry. And are all of them, I mean, how many breeds does that represent? And are all of them equally endangered or threatened? 
we work with about 170 different breeds, of which 51 are what we call critically endangered. The Livestock Conservancy monitors the, the population status of all of these rare breeds, and, uh, and we classify them based on, for, for livestock, it's based on the number of registrations per year. And so we work with purebreds. That way you know that you, you truly have you know, the real deal, if you will. And, uh, and the number of animals that, that are registered each year is a pretty good measure of breeding stock. You're not going to register the ones that you're not going to breed. Mm. Um, and so this gives us a really good idea of how many breeders are out there. And we divide them up into uh, four categories. Critical is the most endangered, then threatened, watch, and recovering. And recovering are doing pretty well, uh, but we're still kind of keeping an eye on them. And then um, when they get to, to 15,000 breeding animals or more, then we graduate them from our conservation list. And, uh, and only look at them about every 10 years is, is uh, how often we look at animals that are not on our conservation list. Now, when you've got some an animal that's on your critical list, what kind of numbers are we talking about? I mean, how few animals are there out there? With the critical list, um, there are fewer than 200 annual registrations. And so for some of these breeds, they, they might be... Um, you know, very, very small numbers. Uh, you, you might have, um, you know, fewer than, than uh, 50 Lincoln Red cattle, for example, that are registered each year. Wow. And, um, yeah, and with, with some of the horses, with the economy for horses in the last several years, uh, a lot of times it's less than 20 that are being registered each year. So we're really worried about some of these breeds. Okay, I, I'm I'm just amazed at the numbers. I mean, to have 20 or 50 or 200 of a of a uh, registered animals of a certain kind of breed. I mean, well, that that would that would translate. So that's per year. So that would translate depending on the longevity of the breed. You know, let's say it might be 200 or so animals in the, in the whole breeding population because you've got the ones that were born the year before and the year before that and so on. Got it. Um, so so they're, they're not quite as, you know, it's not that there's only 200 animals left, uh, but, that, uh, but that they're not breeding a lot and, and, that, um, and that, that that overall population is still going to be really, really small. Got it, yeah, because you do want to have some, some uh, genetic diversity even amongst that, that breed itself. Um, yeah, as, as and you that's really important. I was wondering, and, Allison, and, do, you, yeah. do, do you line up uh, potential breeders or people who are interested in preserving a breed with uh, people that own the breed? Yeah, that's actually a really big part of what we do because with, with breeds, as you can imagine, that are, that are so critically endangered and they may be spread pretty thin across the United States. And so helping breeders find each other and helping folks that, that want to start raising rare breeds figure out which breed is going to work best for them on the farm. That's a real important part of what we do. All right. So what does it take? Let's say I'm, I'm a farmer. You know, I've got um, acreage. And I do have uh, an investment already, and I plan to keep on kind of sticking with that Bolingo cattle. But... 
um, you know, I, I live in the upper Midwest. I've, I've got some room. What kinds of things should I think about and what kinds of things do you look for in a potential farmer for, let's say, if I wanted to, say, dedicate myself to a kind of poultry? Yeah, so first we would talk to you about, you know, what what are your farm objectives? Because that's the most important thing to making sure that you're going to succeed is to find a breed that fits with what your style of farming is, the products that, that might have appeal to your customers, those kinds of things. So we would look at, at, at those first and then start talking about whether uh, there's a breed of chicken or perhaps you know, a breed of duck or, or, or goose or turkeys that, that might meet the needs for your farm. Um, and then from our side, we're looking for farmers that, um, that have the patience that it takes to, um, to, to stick with this for the long run. Because with these older breeds, you know, it's, it's not an instant path to success. You talked about the gentleman that, that worked with his cattle for 10 years. And that's true for, for all of us as farmers is, it, you know, it takes that, that long-term commitment to start with something that maybe doesn't 100% meet what you want, but is going to get there in the long run if you put the energy into it. You mentioned something that I think uh, is important for farmers to hear, and that has to do with marketing. So um, it's not that you have to be a farmer that is so well healed, you never have to think about, you know, I'm going to just give away my time and give away my land to this this project. Uh, but I, I as, a, as a kind of a regular farmer, I have to see some return. So do you actually take that marketability of the animal into account? We really do. Because, you know, it, it, it's not like, you say, uh, well, like you say, you know, it's not like uh, most people can just devote themselves to a project without any kind of economic return. And so, so for most farmers, um, there's got to be some um, uh, some market for the products that they're creating. And we we put a lot of attention to that and work directly with uh, individual farmers to help them discover, um, you know, how they can make the products from these rare breeds really shine. Um, for some of them, it's about helping them, uh, helping the farmers understand marketing directly to the customer. Mm. Um, and sometimes it's about working with an individual breed and trying to figure out what it's best at. And so some of these old breeds don't really fit in the same market niche that they did 150 years ago. Uh, and so it's about turning that around and finding new uh, new markets. A um, good example there is uh, American guinea hogs. And um, they were really popular 100 years ago when people had small homesteads and they were a large type of hog. And um, general personality, there was something that you could keep to produce both meat and lard for, for your homestead. Mm. And then in the 20th century, of course, we turned in our pork market to lean meat production, and the lard lost its value. You know, we developed petroleum products for lubricants, and we developed uh, hydrogenated vegetable oils for uh, cooking, 
And so we didn't use the lard in the cooking. We didn't use the lard for mechanical purposes anymore. And this poor little guinea hog uh, lost its job. Mm. So then uh, the Livestock Conservancy, working with uh, some chefs and farmers in the southeast, uh, one of the chefs in South Carolina discovered that the, the lard from the guinea hog was absolutely perfect for the charcuterie that he was making. These are the old-style cured meats, like European style. Right. And um, he was playing around with those and, and building a, a customer base for charcuterie. Well, it just turns out that the, the lard from the guinea hog is absolutely perfect for making charcuterie. And all of a sudden, look, here's a new market for an old breed um, that's made an, an amazing comeback in the last 10 years because it found a new job. That is fascinating. And and it really gets to the, the question that was kind of rumbling around in my head, which was, um, do you see chefs being a an important part of the work because of their uh, interest in, in things that are new or things that are new again? And, and do you find that um, there may be a growing consumer appreciation of what all of this means? I think that there is, Sylvia. It's, it's just like we've seen for heirloom vegetables, that as the consumers have discovered the flavor profile and um, started enjoying the diversity on the plate, uh, for vegetables, um, they're doing the same, both the chefs and the consumers, uh, for for animal products too, and uh, and chefs are playing an important role in that. Um, just, I mean, is there are there any coincidences really? So just this past week, I rendered ten pounds of lard at home, mm-hmm. and this lard was acquired from a uh, organic pork producer just you know just minutes from my from my farm perfect yes and uh certainly this was something that i'd never done before um growing up i grew up with lard lard used Mm -hmm. in very generous quantities uh because that's part a big part of puerto rican cooking it's Mm -hmm. puerto ricans uh eat uh pork they're not that uh that those uh, traditionally, they just didn't eat a lot of beef. And yeah. so... Co- coincidentally, Sylvia, I grew up in Puerto Rico. No kidding! <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. We've got a lot to talk about after the show. Yeah, exactly. And so when I grew up watching my grandmother cook, when she made rice, we're talking about major quantities of yeah. pork lard that went into that. And at the end of the uh, the, the cooking time, you had... Oh, grains of rice that were beautifully separated, shiny and amazingly flavorful. And so I rendered this lard. I've got now jars sitting in my freezer. And when you start talking about guinea hog, I think, oh, my gosh, isn't that a wonderful animal? Because yeah. I also learned um, about riettes, which is a, um, a potted meat made mm-hmm. with pork and a lot of fat. And it is absolutely delicious. Sounds wonderful. Oh, I think about it, and I'll tell you, I begin to drool. My, uh, my stepdaughter made it. She's a fantastic cook, and it was a wonderful, wonderful Thanksgiving, let me tell you. And so it, it's, it's so 
um, encouraging Allison to hear about that pull from the chef world. Yeah, another another one is uh, duck eggs. I think one of the farms near you is raising ducks for for eggs, mm-hmm. and the uh, the chefs and bakers love to be able to use the duck eggs. Uh, it gives, as I understand it, I haven't tried it yet at home, but uh, uh, you know more. Um, the, the cakes rise better, and you get a lighter texture and all of that. So. Wow. So let me ask you. I'm a farmer. I'm listening to this show. Allison, how can, where would they go? Where would a listener go to find out more? Well, we've got a ton of information on our website. We're a nonprofit organization, and so uh, most of the information that we have is uh, available for free to you know through our website and and uh, by uh, emailing or calling the office. So the website is uh, www.livestockconservancy.org, and then we've got two books uh, that I want to talk about for a sec, if that's okay. Mm-hmm. One's called An Introduction to Heritage Breeds, um, and this is from story publishing, and it really guides the farmer through deciding how heritage breeds can fit on their farm and and how to get started with it all. So that's a great place to start. Okay. And the second book is going to be coming out this spring. It's a second edition to a, a book we put out in 2006 called Managing Breeds for a Secure Future. And the thing I love about uh, this book, and especially the new second edition, is that we talk in there a lot about conservation breeding. And this applies, you know, even if you're not raising a rare breed, it's important in your, in your small herds and flocks to know how to, how to breed them so that you don't have to go out and buy new breeding stock all the time to maintain the genetics that you've got right there on your farm. And so we talk a lot about that. We give some real concrete examples in the new edition, and that should be coming out, uh, I hope, in April. Two books to watch out for. Allison. Both available on our website. Good. All right, so we know where to go. And, again, that that, uh, website address is? www.livestockconservancy.org. Allison, thank you so much for being with us this morning. I'm hoping that we'll be able to have another conversation soon, maybe to take a look at that new book. Okay, terrific. Well, Sylvia and Dave, thanks so much. Really had fun with you today. Bye, Allison. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. All right, and give folks your website, Sylvia. It is www.bronxtobarn.com. And you'll find um, lots of podcasts from previous shows. This one will go up as well, as well as to learn about our farm, which is called Bullbrook Keep, and our 100% grass-fed beef. See you next week, Sylvia. Bye-bye now. Now it's time for the Bible.